Congratulations. Well, as we get ready to get into the word today, uh, you home folks know how much I value and appreciate the opportunity to break the bread of life and to share God's word with you. Uh, this, this hour is so significant to me. And so you can rest assured that if I'm going to give that time up to somebody else, it's going to be somebody I've got a lot of confidence in. So today we have evangelist Jessica Bryan coming. Her husband, Frank, was killing it on the saxophone in worship. How about that? Thank you so much, Frank. Why don't you make Jessica welcome as she comes to bring the word today? so good to be here with you today. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. As I said in the first service, you guys have a wonderful pastoral team. Amen? Amen. Yeah, thankful for them. That's right. You can clap. They've got their wonderful pastoral team. How many of you in here have a favorite pair of shoes? Anybody have a favorite pair of shoes? You know, maybe it's just me, but, you know, I tend to believe most people have those one pair of shoes that they just kind of naturally gravitate towards. The ones that they reach for and kind of as they're running out the door, those are the ones they slip on. I know for me during the summer months, it is these one particular grubby pair of of sandals. You know, there's just something about them, you know. I will wear these to the grocery store. I will wear these if I'm running outside of pool weeds. I have even worn these to church. Um, my husband does not quite share the same fondness for these shoes that I do. Um, he, in fact, has hid them from me on several occasions until I have threatened just to buy another pair, so he gives them back. But he refers to them as my grandma sandals. So any grandmas in the room, you can take it up with him. I don't know what he means by that, but my grandma shoes, um, but you know, I hate to admit it, you know, over time I have noticed that I have slowly traded fashion for comfort, right? Practicality, right? You know, in, in terms of traded for that, for the fashion aspect, and I greatly attribute this um, to having three sons. I mean, no, when you've got children, you need to be able to move quickly, fast, right? So I have also lowered the style of shoe, and I typically wear flat shoes. So on the rare occasion that I wear any sort of heel, um, I feel like I'm less than graceful. Any ladies can relate to that when you wear a heel. You know, it seems like a good idea, but then you put them on and walk out the door. You know, so maybe that's why when I stumbled across this one particular article about a man by the name of Charles Blondin, anybody ever hear of him before? Nobody. Well, he's considered to be widely um, considered to be the greatest fun ambulance, which is also a tightrope walker. How many have ever seen anybody tightrope before on TV? Whatever. Well, he's considered to be the best of the best. In fact, at the age of four, he was using his father's fishing rod, fishing pole, as a balancing rod to practice on. Isn't that amazing? And at the age of 35 years, um, he was actually the first person to cross the gorge below the Niagara Falls on a rope that was a third of a mile long. Isn't that impressive? He did this feat 17 different times. 17 different times, and so we know that he lived to do it again. So 17 different times, and during those times, because he was such a performer, he incorporated different elements to that performance. He did it blindfolded. He actually walked backwards on this rope. He did it on a pair of stilts, and I can say that I was impressed simply because I, you know, I can barely walk in heels, and so he's walking on a tightrope in stilts. He did also, while carrying his manager 
on his back, walked across this, this tightrope. My personal favorite is the time that he strapped a stove to himself, they say, walked midway and cooked himself an omelet. Not just a fried egg, but they clarified an omelet with cheese. He was a performer. You know, those that watched him were mesmerized. How many of you ever watched somebody who are just like mesmerized? You're, you know, drawn in. They described his performances as being fantastic and even inspiring. Some even went as far to say that as they watched him, they were so moved with emotion that they actually considered taking up tightrope walking themselves. Just an inspiration to watch and to witness. You know, as I read scripture, I can tell you that I too, you know, am inspired. I'm in awe as I I look at the disciples and the way that God used them to establish the emerging church and to evangelize the world. Anybody else inspired as you read scripture and as you look at the lives of of the, the men and women throughout scripture? But these men... You know, the reality of it is that you and I largely sit here today because of their lives, right? You realize that because of their commitment, because of their dedication and obedience and belief in the mission that Christ had laid out for them, you and I can gather here today. How many are thankful for that? Thankful for that. You know, as we prepare to open our Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 16, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, but as we park here this morning at Matthew 16, it's clear that Jesus' mission at this particular point in the gospel, Jesus knew that his mission was, was coming to a close. I mean, know that Jesus was sent here for a particular reason, right? And he knew that his mission was nearing its end. And so this mission that he had been preparing his disciples for, this remarkable task, was about to to be, it was on the horizon. And undoubtedly, the disciples had been inspired. They had been moved and stirred by the many teachings of Jesus. You know, how many would say that if Jesus, you know, were, were up here or you could come in on a Wednesday night and just have a small group with Jesus, right? You could do that. How many could say you'd probably leave inspired, you know, really inspired by that? The firsthand teachings. They also were witnesses to uh, the many miracles, right? The signs and the wonders that, you know, were meant to validate his identity before a lost world. And so they were moved. But how many also understand that Culture was also inspired by Jesus. How many get the culture uh, followed him around, right? They followed him around so much so that at times he had to, you know, leave to, to get alone. They were inspired. They were moved by him. But how many understand that it has to go beyond inspiration at some point? right? How many understand that the Holy Spirit and God uses those, those tools, right, to, to, to reveal Jesus so that we might be, go beyond simply being emotionally stirred because inspiration inevitably wanes. How many have ever been inspired to do something and then, you know, you got home, <laughs> right? Inspiration fades, and so in Matthew 16, we find Jesus initiating a conversation with his disciples that proves to be a life-changing moment. And Matthew says this in uh, verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, 
but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. What a powerful moment in scripture. You know, at this point in Christ's mission, you know, he was very much aware that there was increasing opposition and hostility on the horizon that was arriving and coming from the religious establishment. How many recognize, how many knew that Jesus was not delusional? He knew that uh, there was some hostility and opposition to his ministry. And so as Jesus is in the midst of, of this moment, he knew what that would mean, not only for himself, because he was very much aware of why he was here, but he also knew what that would mean for his disciples. And so here in Matthew 16, very onset at verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees who are bitter opponents from one another because, you know, they, they just don't really care for each other. They have opposing beliefs in certain big areas. They find a common enemy, a common threat in Jesus. And so they kind of team up here and they come to Jesus and some translations literally say they demand some say ask, but they demand another sign from Jesus. We've already established that Jesus has performed countless miracles, right? Countless wonders that have already validated who he was as the son of the living God. And so their request, although at first glance might look like they are receptive, open to who Jesus was, Jesus knew their motives and understood that they simply had come to him to test him to trap him. And so he responds with a rebuke and lets them know that the only other sign that he would give them would be his resurrection from the dead. And I love this passage of scripture because it's a sermon in itself and it simply says this, he left them and went away. I mean, no, sometimes when people are coming looking, to an looking for an argument, your best thing to do is just leave and walk away. And so Jesus leaves and walks away. And he and his disciples, they hop into a boat, and they, they head across the other side of the Sea of Galilee, headed towards the region of Caesarea Philippi. And when they arrive on that northern shore, Scripture says that this exact location, and we must understand that Jesus was intentional in everything that he did. How many can say, yes, we understand that? He wasted no moment. And so he was intentional with this location as well. And so the disciples and Jesus, they arrive on this northern shore, and as they get out of the boat, Jesus asks the disciples a very pointed and direct question. How many have ever been asked a direct question, right? He looks at his disciples and he says, who do people say that, I, that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? I mean, understand that Jesus knew that the disciples would very much have heard the chatter and the opinions offered up by their family. I mean, no, uh, if you live in a house with other family members, you know their opinions, like it or not, right? You know their opinions. How many know that they also understood the thoughts of their friends? How many can say, yeah, I know how my friends think. You have certain friends that you can predict how they're going to respond, right, and things that they're going to say. And there were, they also were aware, they were out in culture, and so they rubbed shoulders with, with those who also shared opinions. And so Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Scripture tells us that the disciples, they simply respond by highlighting people's neutrality. Their uncommittedness, right, in terms of who Jesus was. You know, they offered up some responses. You know, some say John the Baptist. They listed some prophets. 
What that was saying was this, the crowd recognized that Jesus walked with some sort of supernatural authority the same as those prophets did. How many understand that the crowd recognized that Jesus walked in an authority that was unique? And so here they highlight that, but all of those responses are inadequate. How many know that you can recognize, you know, Jesus to, you know, Jesus to have authority? But how many understand it's a whole nother thing to recognize him as the son of the living God? And so as, they, as they're having this moment, you know, Jesus understood that his mission would cost him his very life. And he also knew as he looked at his disciples that the majority of them would be martyrs for the kingdom. And he knew that it had to go beyond simply goosebumps. It had to go beyond, right, watching and witnessing the miracles, right, and being inspired. But they had to be committed, right, to the foundational revelation of who Jesus Christ was. Come on, church. We must be rooted in that. And it's as if Jesus says in this moment, he turns the question from what people say. What a powerful, powerful moment. As Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, all right, we've heard what your friends think. We've heard what your family has to say. We've heard the overwhelming opinions of culture. But now what about you? Who do you say that I am? I mean, understand, each one of you in this room, just because your mom and dad or your, your grandmother or grandfather know Jesus, that doesn't determine your status. How many understand that that question is, is personal? And so scripture says that Peter responds and he says, you are the the Messiah, the son of the living God. I mean, know that Peter had identified Jesus as the Messiah, but this point in Matthew 16 is the most complete identification as to who Jesus was at that point. And so he's had this revelation. You know, the disciples, they were just ordinary Flawed. How many in this room, starting with myself, can say, yeah, I'm flawed? Right? I'm flawed. They were ordinary flawed. You know, you look at the disciples and you recognize these weren't perfect men who, you know, had deserved this revelation. The reality was that they had a heart that was open and receptive to Jesus. And because they were open and receptive to Jesus, God the Father, right, the Holy Spirit revealed Jesus to them. How many know that if you're sitting in this room and you've been on the fence and you said, you know, I don't really know what I believe. I'm kind of neutral in this. Can I encourage you and challenge you even as we're sitting here today just to open up your heart and say, you know, God, if you're real, reveal Jesus to me. Show me Jesus. He's looking for a heart that's open and receptive. You know, Peter's statement where he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You know, that word living is, was intentional by Peter. It was that revelation that in a, in a world that is searching for life in all sorts of dead gods, because understand this, the culture in which, you know, they were standing in in this moment was surrounded by Greek and, and Roman influence that was widely paid with pagan with their worship. And they are surrounded. So in this moment, as Peter has had this revelation, you're not just the Messiah, but you are the son of the living God. You are in a class. You are in a league all of your own. You are set apart. You are unique. You are the promised one, the hope of the world. How many can say amen today that he is the son of the living God? 
that confession is significant. You know, what's mind-blowing to me is even in that moment as Peter makes this confession after this revelation, he still truly doesn't understand Jesus' mission entirely and surely not his own or the rest of the disciples. But as they remain open, right, understand this, as you remain open to who God is, as you remain open to Jesus, he will continue to reveal himself to you. And Jesus does the same here. Jesus then turns to Peter after this revelation and confession. And he says, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. I may know that Peter's name wasn't always Peter. Rewind back, right? You know, John chapter one, we realize that he used to be called Simon. But here in this moment, Jesus is bringing to light, you know, as we look at Peter, we understand that the word rock gives this picture of stability, right? How many understand as you look at the life of Peter and how he's responded in situations, he's not the most balanced person, right? He's oftentimes, you know, reacting, you know? I mean, here I have that, um, you know, struggle with that besides myself, right? To react, impulsive sometimes. And that's how Peter was. He, he was often impulsive, and yet Jesus in this moment looks at Peter even though he wasn't, you know, the man that we read about in the New Testament, right? As you read, you know, First and Second Peter, and you realize that Peter, the great apostle Peter, as he writes to the churches living in Rome and throughout the Roman province of Asia, under the reign of Emperor Nero, and you read these writings, and you're like, man, what, a, what, a, what an astounding, great apostle. How many recognize that in this moment, he wasn't there yet? And yet Jesus looks at Peter, and he says, you are rock. You are the rock on which I will build my church. This statement, I love what he does. He calls forth out of Peter what Peter is not yet. How many know that there are some of you in this room that God is calling forth things out of you, right? Calling out the person that he is calling you to be. And man, you're looking in the mirror and you're saying, I don't see that. Understand this, God sees that in you. As you keep your heart open to him, he will begin to show himself through you. And so today, be encouraged by that. He calls forth, he prophesies over. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. How many understand? He wasn't saying on the person Peter. He was saying on this foundational revelation and confession, I will build my church. And there was continued revelation that continued to take place. You see, not much has changed since Matthew 16. How many understand that it's still the same question that Jesus is asking? As I look across this room, he's still asking, who do you say that I am? You can't answer for your parents. You can't answer for your neighbor. You can't answer for your classmate. Jesus is pointedly looking at each and every one of you and saying, but who do you say that I am? It's an individual response that has to take place. It's still the same question. We, it still demands a response. We're still living in the midst of a pagan culture that's searching for life in dead things. How many could say that's true? As you look around our world, there is still a world that is searching. Can you hear me today? That Jesus is still the only answer. Jesus is still the only answer. You know, apart from Jesus, you and I have nothing to offer the world. How many recognize that? 
apart from Jesus, we have nothing to offer the world. And so church, we must be fixed on this foundational revelation. In a world that is, you know, trying to talk about, you know, many avenues and many routes to God, we as the church, a body of believers, individuals who have made this confession and had this revelation must be fixed on the fact that Jesus is in a class all by himself. He is set apart. He is unique. There are not many pathways to heaven. Jesus himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes unto the Father except through me. When we try to remove that from the foundation of the church, the whole house crumbles. It is upon this that we are fixed. The church is fortified in, and it functions out of the authority of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus issued this promise, and all that powers of hell will not conquer it. What an absolute promise. In other words, he's saying this, that the church has an irrepressible nature about it, an uncontrollable, unstoppable nature that we as the church will endure, right? There's nothing that hell can throw at the church that's going to stop its mission. How many get that today? In fact, the devil can give us all of hell and the church is still going to endure. We are still going to conquer. Can somebody say amen this morning? You know, I may be taking some creative liberty here, but I believe that his word is alive and active. And as I read it, my imagination runs wild as Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's sharing with them in this moment. You know, he's looking at them and he's saying, you know, the church will endure. How many know that Jesus was aware that his death again was looming? How many get that? So he understood that. And I believe as he looks at the church and says, you will endure what he's letting uh, not just the disciples know, but the devil know. He's letting them know that your plan to end me is going to end you. How many understand that? Your plan is going to fail. He's saying that he will raise from the dead victorious, never to die again. And that the church will continue to evangelize the world. You see, the hell can't stop the church for it's fortified. It's made strong in Christ. You know, they will not only endure, but they are empowered. How many understand, church, that we are empowered? We're not weak. How many get that so many times we as Christians walk around like, you know, we're down in the dumps and, you know, we're just, you know, making it. How many know that we are an empowered people? Jesus promised, you know, the disciples that he would give them the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever they would forbid on earth would be forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Understand this, we are living in the age of the church and in the age of the spirit. And in order for Jesus to give authority, how many understand he had to possess authority? And so when he was handing over those keys, he was handing over to them power so that they could function out of the same power that was a threat to the religious establishment that was apparent and evident to culture, right, and was going to put an end to death, hell, and the grave. I may know that you and I are empowered, that they would have heavenly jurisdiction on earth. In Acts chapter 1, we realize that Jesus gave this command for them to wait, right? How many understand for the gift, right, to wait? How many struggle with waiting besides me? I've got a three-year-old. He also struggles with waiting. Waiting, right? And he commanded them to wait for the gift. Why? Because it was important. 
In Acts chapter 2, we see that the gift of the Holy Spirit came, right? And the Holy Spirit fell, the first initial physical evidence with the baptism and the, you know, the expression of the speaking in tongues. And when that fell in that moment, Peter recognized, as did the prophet Joel prophesied, that it was meant for all flesh, not just those in the upper room. How many understand that the gift of the Holy Spirit, right, we know we receive that upon salvation, but the baptism in the Holy Spirit is meant and intended for every believer. I believe that. How many believe that, church? We're a Pentecost church. Do we believe that today? That we are empowered. And in Acts chapter 4, we realize that as Peter and John, they stand before the Sadducees, that they recognize them as men who had been with Jesus. Why? Because they recognize them as men who walked in that same authority. How many today understand that when you and I are filled with the baptism in the Holy Spirit, we walk in his power, right? That people around us recognize the same authority that we have that Christ carried. We must understand that we have been called, if we've had a revelation and confessed Jesus as the son of the living God, that there will be fierce opposition but we will endure. How many can say as you look at culture, man, there are, there's some opposition arising. How many also understand the church did the greatest under the most intense persecution? There's fierce opposition arising. How many also understand that you should not be surprised when opposition arises? Because hear me, church, the devil recognizes that a spirit-empowered church is hell's greatest threat. I'm going to say that again. A spirit-empowered church is hell's greatest threat. Come on, we better wake up. A spirit-empowered church is hell's greatest threat. It was not just meant for those in the upper room. We are meant to offer life to those searching for life and dead things. We are meant to offer the hope of Jesus Christ to a lost world. How many can say, man, I want all the equipment I can get. I'm not okay with my family going to hell. I'm not okay with my friends going to hell. I'm not okay with my generation going to hell. That's something, and I know i got to move along, but that's something that the Holy Spirit has been stirring in my heart. As a mother of three kids, I know that I'm in a spiritual battle with all of hell. And I claim my children under the blood. I claim this generation under the blood. I believe this. It's time for the church to rise up, to get off of their duff, right? You know, as Peter says in first, right? In Peter, he says what? It's time to wake up. It's time to stay alert, to get ready, right? Because we are in a spiritual battle. We need all the equipment we can get. The church forges ahead as it focuses on the mission of Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us from then on, Jesus began to unfold, you know, his, his impending death, right? His, all the things that would take place to him, that he would suffer, die, and that he would raise again. Scripture tells us in that moment that Peter goes from being called blessed to a tool of the enemy. How many have ever gone from being blessed to kind of just a tool, right? A tool, right? Real quick, starting with me. And, um, you know, here... Peter pulls Jesus aside after Jesus has shared these things, right? Jesus is revealing more, but Peter has gone from divine revelation now to human understanding. How many can say that you can sit in church and, man, have a divine, you know, revelation and then walk out, walk home and, like, you're, you're, you've shifted? And so he shifted here in this moment, and he says, no. He begins to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus calls him out. You know, in that moment, you know, it's not like Jesus looked at Peter and said, you know, I must have really missed it, Peter. You're not a rock. You're not what I thought you were. You know, that's the devil speaking. When you fail, your failure isn't final. He didn't look at him and say that. Rather, he used it for a teaching opportunity to let him know that, hey, Peter and the rest of the disciples, it matters where you fix your focus. 
Because times are going to get hard. And when times get hard, right, there's that temptation to move your eyes from above to down to below. You know, professional tightrope walkers, what's amazing is they say that if you watch a professional, the way to tell the difference between an amateur besides the fall, the, besides the part that the amateurs don't, you know, they fall, um, is that amateurs tend to look down at their feet when they get scared. They look side to side at the pole. Professionals, they always keep their gaze upward and forward. They never look side to side or down at their feet. I may understand, church, that you and I have been called to keep our gaze upward, to keep our eyes upward. You know, lastly, you know, we all have free will. Jesus goes on to tell them, you know, for the Son of Man is going to return, and there's going to be a judgment that takes place. And in this, this moment here, we understand that Judas was within earshot, as was Peter. How many get that the disciples were not robots? Anybody else, like, you know, you're like, oh, my goodness, they weren't? You know, they weren't, they had free will. God chose them in his foreknowledge, right, to be the men that would advance and establish and advance, you know, the church. But they had to choose him back. How many understand God would, God would do it another way if they chose not to get on board? We see that in Judas, right? Judas took his eyes and missed the eternal for the temporal. You know, when I thought about that in that moment, I realized that the disciples didn't have to. They got to. We're sitting here inspired, and the realization is they didn't have to. They got to be a part of it. You know, as the church, as you sit here today, don't, you know, so many times we, we stand around and we complain about the mission that God's called us to. Man, let's get our head out of the sand and say, man, I don't have to. I get to be a part of this. I get to share Jesus. I get to share the hope of the world with my family, with my friends. I get to be a light in the darkness. We get to. There is free will attached. But at the end of the day, they had to choose, and so do we. You know, Christ's arrival, and as the worship team prepares to come, will not just mean judgment for the unbeliever. How many know each and every one of us, the question is still the same. And that's what it all comes down to. As I look across this room, I guess here's the question that's posed is, who do you say Jesus is? Not just a head knowledge. I'm, because here's the thing, it's so easy to come to church, right, and we sing, what a wonderful worship team you have. How many can say as you, you sing songs, sometimes we can be moved emotionally, right? And the Holy Spirit uses our emotions. God created us with emotions. We can be inspired but how many know it's gotta go beyond just the moving of our emotions and even our head, but it's got to connect to our heart. We've gotta be open and receptive. And today, this is my prayer. As I prayed in my room before, you know, I came in here today, I'm gonna pray it now over you. Holy Spirit, I pray God for every person in this room that might be searching. God, I pray for every person that might be sitting in here and they're saying, man, you know, I've come to church my whole life, but I, I never really had a revelation of who Jesus Christ was. God, I pray in this moment you would reveal Jesus to them as their hearts are open wide. Reveal him as the son of the living God, the hope for their situation, the hope for their world, the hope for their family. God, reveal yourself. Holy Spirit, begin to stir. Here's my first call. If you're sitting in here today and you're saying, 
You know, today as I sat here, I've had a revelation. I've been struggling with who Jesus is, but today I recognize him as the son of the living God in a class all by himself. And I'm ready to confess that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And I want to make heaven my home. Is there anybody in here today that would just rip through a raise of hand this morning? Say, I want to give my life to Jesus. I confess it today. Holy Spirit, move. Don't you be scared. Don't look to your right or to your left. This is between you and God because each and every one of us will answer this question for ourselves. Is there anybody in here today that would say, that's me? I'm going to give it a moment. Holy Spirit, work. Is there anybody in here today? A revelation. I'm going to give it one more second. Anybody else? Yes, I see that hand. Anybody else? I'm going to give it another second. This is the most important thing you'll do for in your entire life. Anybody else? I don't want to miss anybody. I'm going to ask this. I'm coming back to you. I'm going to ask if you would stand, young man. I'm going to ask if you would stand. Greatest decision you'll ever make in your entire life is to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Nothing else, everything else will pale in comparison. Understand this, your failures are not final. Your failures are not final. Jesus sees you and he's got a plan and a purpose and a call for your life. And so if you are here today and you're saying, I've had a revelation of who Jesus is and I want to confess him as Lord and Savior of my life, I'm going to invite you to raise both hands to heaven. That's an act of surrender, right? We all recognize that universal sign of surrender. And I'm gonna pray a prayer, but you just have a conversation with God. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I pray, what's your name? God, I pray for Brandon today. God, come on, church, you begin to pray. I pray for Brandon today, God. I thank you, God, for this moment, God, in his life, this life-defining, life-changing moment where he says, I recognize, I've had a revelation that Jesus is not just one of many routes, but he is the only way to heaven. God, I pray today, God, as you're writing his name down in the Lamb's book of life, God, that there would be a celebration that stirs up within him. Lord God, there'd be a passion that stirs up within him. God, that you'd begin to plant dreams. God, call him forth, call out of him who he not yet is. You, God is calling you to be a declarer of truth. Maybe you've never been known as a person who declares truth. Today, that's you. He's calling you, defining you, that you are a person who is, who is gonna be a truth teller. You are gonna declare Jesus Christ before a lost world. He's changing your identity. He's revealing who you are in him. Lord God, I pray for a supernatural God outpouring of your Holy Spirit. God in him, God that will pour out to all who come in contact with him. In Jesus' name, amen. God, I pray today, God, for your church, God, that we would rise up and be a rock and not a stumbling block. Maybe there are those of you in here, you've just shifted your focus. Maybe you feel like, man, I failed. Today, Jesus is calling you forth and saying your failure isn't final. Is there anybody in here today that's saying, man, I feel like I have failed in so many areas and the devil's been telling me that God can't use me. Today, I'm gonna invite you to stand right where you are and to say today, my failure isn't final. God, I fix my focus on you. I'm moving my, my focus from downward to upward. Is there anybody in here today that that's you? You're saying that I feel like my failure meant that it was final, but today I'm gonna receive the word of the Lord. Is there anybody else in here today? Holy Spirit, would you begin to move? Anybody else in here? I don't want to miss anybody today. Anybody else in here today? I see hands all across this place. Anybody else today? I see hands all across this place. 
Holy Spirit, we come and we, we condemn the lie of the enemy. We bind that lie. God, we declare future. We declare your promised future. We declare your hope. God, we are going to recognize that we get to, even in moments of failure, even if we've been a stumbling block, instead of that rock that you've called us to, that we're going to stand back up, we're going to pick ourselves back up, and we're beginning to walk forward as we keep our focus on you. God, I pray, God, right now, God, that there would be a physical shedding, God, of every lie that's been spoken over them. God, a, a shedding, God, of every, every, every thought. God, we take that captive this morning. God, I pray for a spirit-empowered church. I'm going to close like this. Church, I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. I do this most places I go. Every hand raised up to the sky. This is a universal sign of surrender. And we're going to declare that we are going to be a rock. We're going to confess like Peter that Jesus Christ is Lord before a lost world. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I pray. Come on, church, begin to pray. Pray for your families. Go ahead, call them out by name. Pray for your friends. Pray for your classmates. Pray for your community. Come on, lift up their names before heaven. God, I pray, God, for the sake, God, of my family. God, I pray for the sake of my friends. God, I pray for the sake of my generation. God, that I would live righteously before you. God, that I would be empowered. I would seek the filling of your Holy Spirit, God, on a daily basis. I would walk in your power and in your authority, God that I would be a rock for which other people can come to know Christ. God, let us keep our focus heavenward. God, let your church walk in the power that you've called them to walk in. Letting them know, God, we pray for Wrightsville, that they get to. Everybody say that. I get to. One, two, three. I get to. God, not that they have to, but I get to. God, I pray for more than inspiration, God, but a continued revelation. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.